Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7 this morning where begins the story of the ten plagues. Everybody says, ooh. That's pretty good. It's a story that's going to span the next five or six chapters of this 40-chapter book of Exodus. Now, I know I promised you the story of the ten plagues this morning, and we'll see how far we get. But I've decided to split this remarkable story between today and next week. Every so often, what I plan to do in one message becomes two or more messages during my final prep, and so with this story this week. Last week, in preparation for the story of the ten plagues, you may recall I asked you to remember God's heart for the lost. The Bible tells us that the plagues are God's judgment against the gods of Egypt so that not only the Israelites might know that God is Lord, but also the Egyptians might know that God is Lord. God cares not only for Israel. He cares not only for His chosen people. He cares not only for us as believers, but God also loves the lost, those who don't know Him yet as Lord. So it's important, I think, to remember that Even as God is bringing down judgment on the gods of Egypt, His hope and intent is that everyone witnessing these miraculous signs and wonders, as Exodus calls the plagues, God's hope and intent is that everyone witnessing these miraculous signs and wonders, Israelites and Egyptians, come to know that God is indeed Lord. He loves people, including the Egyptians, including the lost, that much. So that was one preparatory piece for the ten plagues story. God loves the lost. A second piece that God put on my heart to share with you about this week in preparation for the ten plagues story is this. I'll give it to you right up front and then we'll talk about it the rest of the message. And that second piece is this. The gods of Egypt are real. Now, how do you react to that statement this morning, I wonder? The gods of Egypt are real. I toyed with the idea of beginning the message this morning with a one-question, true-false test. And the question I was going to ask you was just that, true or false? Are the gods of Egypt referenced in Exodus real? Now, the reason I didn't do that... There's a good friend of mine who's also a teacher. She suggested to me once I I shouldn't set up my students to fail to make a point. (laughs) And so the reason I didn't ask you cold whether or not you thought the gods of Egypt are real is because I strongly suspect that most of you would have answered false. The gods of Egypt are not real, Pastor Todd. And, well, in my opinion, you would have been wrong on that one. So I decided to save you from the intense embarrassment of being wrong this morning. Aren't you grateful? You're welcome. Now, the fact of the matter is the gods of Egypt are real. And the contest that is about to happen in Exodus between God and the gods of Egypt is a real contest of power, authority, and legitimacy. The contest is real between God and the gods of Egypt. It really is a contest for all to see which God is really in charge here, or anywhere for that matter. 
We have a tendency, it seems to me, to poo-poo the power of gods other than our God. And while I agree the result of any contest between other gods and our God is indeed a foregone conclusion, there's no doubt whatsoever that our God will win, the contest is nevertheless real. God takes on real other gods. When the prophets of Baal stand on Mount Carmel, and before Elijah gets a chance to pray to our God to bring down fire, as you recall from the Mount Carmel contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, the Baal prophets go first, and we read the story, and then our imaginations try to relive that contest on Mount Carmel. But most people never give it a second thought that the prophets of Baal will ever really succeed in getting Baal to answer with fire. And the reason we don't think Baal will answer with fire is probably because we think, well, Baal isn't real. So if Baal isn't real, then how can he possibly answer his silly prophets? Poor, misguided prophets of Baal thinking that Baal is real. Poor, misguided Egyptians and Pharaoh thinking all those Egyptian gods are real. How can they be so silly? How can someone be so stupid to think that all those make-believe gods are real? Must because those people are all uncivilized, unenlightened savages or something, worshiping something like a rock or a wooden idol as if the make-believe god it symbolizes is real. And we poo-poo or we tisk-tisk how anyone could be so foolish to believe that any God other than our God, the Jewish and Christian God, is real. Do you, like me, find yourself leaning in that direction too at the very thought of these biblical contests between God and other gods, leaning in the direction of, well, those other gods are not real, so there's really no real contest going on after all because those other gods are not real? Would you, like me, tend to answer false to the question this morning, are the Egyptians' gods in Exodus real? Are other gods besides our God real? If that's your tendency, at least, then consider with me what Scripture has to say about these other gods. Take, for example, Deuteronomy 32, where God is jealous of His people worshiping foreign gods and idols. Moses sings a song and says, They made him, God, jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons, which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your fathers did not fear. Or how about 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul states, The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Or how about Revelation chapter 9, where John notes that people still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons. Or even back in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, where... Pastors and preachers dare not tread because we find a passage there that has largely perplexed 
biblical scholars for ages. It goes like this. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Holy Moses, what's going on there? These mysterious and powerful Nephilim, these sons of God, which a small majority, I think, are uh, scholars lean angels, demons, maybe fallen angels, maybe not fallen yet, hard to say. Having children with human beings? And these children, in turn, being some sort of powerful heroes? You know, God finally steps in and says, in effect, you know, not unlike a parent coming home early from a vacation and finding that your teen children have decided to throw a party in your house. God steps in and says, okay, everybody, out of the pool. He puts an end to what's ever going on here and limits human lifespan to 120 years. But whatever's going on exactly in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, This passage, the others I've mentioned, and more, they take very seriously and treat as real these other gods or super-spiritual or super-powerful supernatural beings. And I suppose I've set you up a bit this morning because I purposely used the word gods here when I asked you true or false are the Egyptian gods real rather than the word demons if I had asked you whether or not you thought demons were real I'd guess most of us would say yes true demons are real but while the Bible treats this idea of other gods interchangeably with demons or demonic power for whatever reason, we don't often make that same connection, just make it metaphorical. Other gods like money and like drugs or sex or alcohol or self. or Bible doesn't make it metaphorical. They're equated here with demons in the spiritual realm. And I think we should make that connection too. After all, isn't that what Paul, for one, says in 1 Corinthians? The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. The Bible tells us that demons stand behind those pagan idols. And my friends, demons are indeed real, and they have real power. One story in the Bible in particular I think illustrates well our our 21st century Western culture reluctance to accept as very real the spiritual realm of other gods or demons. Many of you, I'm sure, recall the story of the golden calf. You remember Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai, and while he's up there, meanwhile, back on the ranch, the people of Israel melt down their jewelry into a golden calf for them to worship. And then you remember when Moses comes back and sees what they're doing. Remember? He says to Aaron, 
or he says to Aaron, hey, bro, what gifts? It's a paraphrase. What he did say is, what did these people do to you, Aaron, that, led, that, that you led them into such great sin? And do you remember Aaron's response? Aaron says, the people gave me this gold, and I, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. See, and we laugh at that. I do too. Because we seemingly automatically suddenly equate Aaron to an eight-year-old who's been told, away to, stay, told to stay away from the cookie jar, and when he's caught red-handed, or cookie-handed, with chocolate chips all around his mouth and a half-eaten cookie in his hand, well, I don't know how this cookie got in my hand. So I think it was just there. And our reaction to Aaron, who is not eight, He's 83 or 84 by this time. Our reaction to Aaron is something like, oh, please, Aaron, that's embarrassing. Out came this calf. Really, how could you possibly expect anyone to believe that excuse? But have any of us paused to consider that Aaron was telling the truth? Have any of us considered that demonic power literally caused all that melted gold to form an image of a calf in that fire? And indeed, as Aaron said, out came this calf. I bet not many of us here, if any, ever considered Aaron was telling the truth. Why not? Why not at least consider it? Is it because we're so cold, so numb, so... We don't consider the demonic realm those other gods real? Do you think for a second demonic power couldn't form a golden calf from melted gold? Why not? People can, and we read demons' power is greater than humans. The spiritual realm is indeed real. And demons indeed have real power. And so when we come across a pagan religion, either ancient or current today, we need to be careful of poo-pooing the people who believe it. It's silly. We should at least consider the very real possibility that the reason so many people worship other gods is because at some point at least in the history of that pagan religion and maybe even currently today, those other gods... The Bible calls demons, perhaps even masquerading as angels of light, as the Bible also says they are wont to do. At some point, maybe they exercised and still exercise some real power that convinces people to worship them. It's naive at best, I think, and dangerous at worst, I think, for us to view those who follow other gods as somehow less intelligent, less civilized, or just stupid. I mean, there's real power, demonic power behind their confusion. The spiritual realm is indeed real, and it's dangerous when we don't regard it as real because our vigilance tends to wane if we don't see demonic power as real. And when our vigilance wanes, when we're no longer wary of the devil and his minions, we aren't as prepared as we should be to counter them with the power of God. 
And I know God's power is greater than that of the devil, for sure. The Bible tells us we need not fear the devil. Tell him to run in Jesus' name and he'll flee, Bible says. But we better respect the reality of the devil and demons and respect their power and their intense hatred for us and God's Word. And we better be vigilant and wary of the real power of evil. Because if we're not, we can possess all the power of Almighty God. And we do. But our possessing all the power of Almighty God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit doesn't do us any good if we never bring it to bear against evil because we discount evil as being some sort of silly non-factor in our lives. Oh, my friends, this discounting of evil as a non-factor in our lives, I think it's a prime tool and method of the devil to keep the power of God through us under control and off of him. See, I imagine the devil counseling himself something like this. Well, believers have the power of God in them, the presence of God in them. God himself is in them, and I can't do anything about it. But what if I can get them not to use the power of God they have in them? Then God's power in them is useless against me. Hmm. And one way it seems to me that the devil can keep us from using the power of God in us against him is to get us to laugh at the power of evil, to make light of it. To slowly over time have us forget just how real he and his power and his hatred for us and all God's creation is. Get us to think he's just a big joke. I think this every Halloween. I'm not against Halloween. But a Halloween doesn't pass when I don't wonder if one thing going on that night each year is this numbing of our vigilance toward the very real other gods out there by getting us to laugh at the likes of our children running around with horns and a tail and a trident. Oh, he's so cute. Look at that little devil. Or dressing us up as a witch. You know, Wicca, modern-day witches, and that cult is alive and well and no laughing matter as it continues to profoundly confuse people with real demonic power. I don't know, maybe when we're helping our kids with their costumes, we shy away from witches and devils and the like. Because the reality of evil isn't cute or funny or to be trifled with lightly. I mean, really, look at these pictures. Doesn't a red flag somewhere kind of go up inside of you? I look at them and I think, have we gone completely insane? Some say I'm overreacting. Oh, it's just in fun. What's the harm? 
What's the harm? Maybe sometimes it's best to overreact when the risk involves something significant. And the risk associated with turning evil into a lighthearted joke just isn't worth it, is it? God takes other gods seriously. Do we? God takes it seriously, whether it's a grand contest on the top of Mount Carmel with all Israel assembled, or whether it's a spectacular, drawn-out, elaborate contest involving ten plagues in Egypt. God takes other gods. God takes the demonic. God takes evil seriously. We're not yet at Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, but you want a preview of how seriously God takes the very real presence of other gods? What's the very first commandment? Right, I hear it all over the room. You shall have no other gods before me. Wow. Not even a hint here, is there, that those other gods aren't real? Or aren't a threat? To the contrary, God refers to them as real. And how threatening are they? they? It's first on his mind to warn his kids, hey, don't mess around with other gods. It's not funny. God knows how tempting they can be. God knows how hard it is when our vigilance wanes and we're not wary against evil. He knows they're very real, those other gods, and they're dangerous when we're not vigilant and wary and ready to use God's power against them. All of which is to say, for our plague story in Exodus, the stage is truly set in Exodus for a very real contest between God and the real gods of Egypt, between God and the demons or demonic that is confused what some have called the most powerful empire on the earth ever into choosing to serve those other gods for millennia. Even millennia at the time Israel was there. And so, going into the plague story, we're remembering God's love for the lost, including the the Egyptians, as he's about to put on this spectacular display of his power and authority. And we're keeping in mind that this is a very real contest between God and other gods, between God and the demonic, the forces of evil who have wooed the Egyptians, and maybe even some of the Israelites have been tempted to think, wow, look at the might of Egypt. Whoa, look at Pharaoh. Impressive. There's real power here with Egyptians' gods. Chance do we have? And the stage is set, truly a cosmic stage, for God to make his case for people to choose and serve Him and Him alone. So is it now, Pastor Todd, we get to finally read the story of the ten plagues? Are we finally there? Do we get to read it? Well, no. Almost. One more piece, and then I promise, so help me God, we'll do the plagues next week. But we do get to read the introduction to the ten plagues, so that's kind of like the ten plagues. If your Bible is open still to Exodus 7, great. If not, I invite you to turn there again. Exodus chapter 7. We'll begin reading at verse 8. Exodus 7, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, 
Then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. And oh, what a preamble to the cosmic contest of the ten plagues. This foreshadowing contest between sticks or snake sticks. You see, Pharaoh's snake stick was a symbol of Pharaoh's power and authority, as was Aaron or Moses' stick. One way to look at it, Pharaoh's main purpose was to bring order from chaos. That was his job. There are many pictures on temples and other ruins in Egypt showing Pharaoh using his stick to bring order from chaos. Pharaoh's method in bringing order from chaos with his stick was to oppress or to beat down others. You've been looking on the screen of one picture, one relief of Pharaoh bringing, down or, bringing order from chaos by beating his conquered enemies with his stick. In fact, in the one you're looking at now, Way on the right, on the left is Pharaoh with the stick above his hand, clutching the, hairs of those tre- the hair of those trembling slaves and beating them with his stick to bring order. And looking on with approval on the right is the Egyptian god of order, Mat, approving of the order that Pharaoh is bringing with his beating stick. One way to look at our God's purpose, too, is to say God also brings order from chaos. He did it in Genesis 1 and 2 when He created the universe, and He's about to do it again, only this time His symbol in the hand of Moses and Aaron is a stick, like Pharaoh's, only unlike it, because God's stick is a shepherd's staff. And God's method in bringing order from chaos is not to beat the oppressed, but to lift up the oppressed and make them strong. His shepherd's staff or rod was to protect and comfort the sheep and to ward off those who came with Pharaoh-like sticks bent on oppressing people. So this is the very first confrontation between Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh. There's this huge symbol of these sticks. Whose stick, whose method of bringing order from chaos is best and is the right or righteous method. And our Scripture captures and makes clear something something of these sticks is symbolic of authority uh, and power. You say, what do I mean? Did you catch it in the passage we just read? Take a look again at verse 12. It says something really odd. It says Aaron's staff swallowed up the Egyptians' staffs. Why not the word snake there? 
What an odd thing to say. Snakes can swallow other snakes. That's never... But the author puts it this way. Aaron's staff swallowed up Pharaoh's staff. I think a signal that something about what those sticks represents is important here. And what about the snake? The snake to the Egyptians, a revered and powerful symbol. In particular, the snake god, or one closely associated with the snake, was the designated protector of the crown prince of Egypt. You can see the snake on King Tut's mask next to the vulture. The vulture and snake regarded as the protector of southern and northern Egypt, united under King Tut. So they're both there. Do you suppose the swallowing up of Pharaoh's snakes foreshadows the tenth plague when the Egyptian gods were powerless to protect the crown prince of Egypt? Big foreshadowing here in this preamble story to the ten plagues. Must have been extremely encouraging to Moses and Aaron and the Israelites when they saw or heard about it. Now, can you just see him? See Moses and Aaron standing there in the great hall before Pharaoh, right? Aaron throws his staff on the ground and it becomes a snake. <laughs> Moses and Aaron standing there feeling pretty good about that. Whoa, what now, Pharaoh? Then imagine how Moses and Aaron must have felt when all the Egyptian magicians somehow made their sticks into snakes. And I say somehow. Be careful about automatically thinking they use sleight of hand. I was reading this week of um, literally a species of cobra found in Egypt that if an expert snake handler puts the exact pressure on some nerve in its neck, it becomes stiff as a board like a snake or like a stick. Then when you throw it down, it... So maybe that's what happened, but remember our lesson earlier this morning. The snake god of Egypt is real. He's a demon. Or she is, the Bible says. Her name is Nekbet. And so maybe this demon was indeed able to turn a stick into a snake. I don't know, but remember, it's a real contest here. So now there stand Moses and Aaron, right, looking at the Egyptians doing the same thing. And they got one snake and a whole bunch of other snakes. Well, that's just great. The sign that God gave us to convince Pharaoh, how's that working out there, Aaron? You start to feel a little embarrassed, maybe a bit chagrined. Pharaoh sitting there looking at them together with his court, kind of smiling smugly, chuckling at Aaron's little attempt to impress them. But then, with no word from Moses or Aaron, and with no previous heads up from God, Maybe God's sitting there with the angels. Look at Moses and Aaron. They're like, oh, oh no, what's going to happen? Watch this, watch this. Watch the look on Aaron's face. What happens next? Watch, watch, watch. I think God has a sense of humor. God never told them what was going to happen next. I imagine Moses and Aaron were as surprised as the Egyptians when no word from either of them, Aaron's sticks start swallowing up the other sticks. Imagine with me a bit. That probably took some time. Have you ever seen a snake try to swallow something? It just takes forever, right? I wonder how long they stood there. Maybe the swallowing was supernaturally quick. Yeah, I don't know, but 
But if not, I, can you just pick this drawn-out snake stick fight? Aaron's stick methodically squaring off and swallowing these Egyptian snake sticks one after the other. God, what a scene that must have. Can you just see the Egyptians growing alarm as each of their sticks go down, literally down the throat of Aaron's? Maybe they started to root. Come on! They're praying to their snake god, neck bet. Come on! Perhaps Moses and Aaron go from being confident to chagrined back to confident as their stick is the last snake alive. Their snake is the last stick standing? And I imagine utter silence in Pharaoh's hall as Aaron goes and retrieves his snake and when he picks it up it becomes a staff again. And I wonder because of all the swallowing if it's like a really big staff now, like a pole. My stick is full. <laughs> and there sits Pharaoh's, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. I imagine in stunned silence, like soaking in what just happened with Pharaoh's, two of Pharaoh's chief symbols of his power and authority and ability to bring order from chaos his stick and his protector, the snake. Gone. What's about to happen through the ten plagues is amazingly foreshadowed. Gee, based on this story of the snake sticks, I wonder who's going to win the contest of the plagues, do you think? God or the gods of Egypt? Uh Uh-oh, Pharaoh. Are you listening? Uh Uh-oh. The author of Exodus foreshadows what's about to happen and who it is will prevail in this very real contest between God's powers. And it spells doom for the gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh and his firstborn son. Now, next week, we will, as God is my witness, and so help me God begin the story from here and look at those ten plagues. And we'll see just how God does versus Pharaoh and versus the Egyptian gods of all creation. We'll see who's the one who's about bringing order, shalom, and peace from chaos. Whose method is best? Who's really in charge of bringing order from chaos? Who is, after all, the one and only Creator God? Whom will you serve? Come next week and find out what happens. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is so easy to get caught up in our age of intellect and reason and science and rational thinking that we forget the very real presence of the spiritual realm. And we forget in poll after poll after poll of people, even people who answer yes to believing in God, a stunning amount answering no. They don't even believe that there is a devil. 
Help us, Father, not to wane in our vigilance, not to dismiss the reality of the devil and those fallen angels, those demons, as just silly or forgotten or something not even to be worried about. Help us to be wary, Father, so that we can bring against them, against those forces of evil, the very power of God. Father, thank you for preserving in your text, the Bible, this amazing contest we're about to read and experience of you versus the other powers in the universe. Help us to look and hear again next week and in this week perhaps as we read ahead to prepare. Help us to look again at fresh eyes with this story of Exodus and you making your case for us to choose to serve you. We love you and in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand please for God's benediction, His good words. Again, from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, Hear, O Israel, hear, O West Bulls Church, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week, West Bulls. Love you guys. Go in peace.